This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to Session 17, Letter vs. Spirit, Part B, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. We're going to continue where we left off last time. Last time we were talking about legalism and trying to define what that means and what it means to walk by the Spirit and this terminology that Paul uses of the letter versus the Spirit and things like that. I just wanted to kind of recap what we did and and, uh, wrap up some of our discussion in that session. Uh, So there's you know, even after that, the last session, um, Daria and I were talking about this, how there's, it feels like there's this fear of rules that permeates evangelical um, culture. Uh, just some of the, the books that I have read and different things you see where there's just this, this strong aversion to rules. It's like rules are bad. The gospel means we get to be free and we don't have to follow rules. Instead, we just follow God, which, which I, I struggle with sometimes. And especially, uh, Dario was reading this parenting book written by a Jewish author. And this author was talking about how rules are good. Rules are something that give definition and structure and, and safety and freedom. You can be free within uh, the discipline of having rules in place. And, and it was just such a contrast with um, some of the books I've had to read for a seminary recently, where there's just this innate fear of rules as something negative and bad that we need to avoid. I've, I've even come across people who have uh, talk about the Ten Commandments, and I mean, in true dispensationalism, the Ten Commandments don't apply to Christians because we only follow the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Most Christians would say that, no, actually, we are supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, except maybe the Sabbath. Well, you know, keep a day of rest, you might say, right? But that's kind of loosey. (laughs) But even at that, even among Christians who believe in keeping the Ten Commandments, I've come across people who will argue uh, that, oh, but they're not a law code. The Ten Commandments, are, it's not a, a rule code. It's, it's like helpful suggestions about how to live your life kind of thing, right? So, you know, I, I'd like to suggest that maybe evangelical culture has picked up this twisted view of law as a reaction against other twisted views of law where it's been abused. Um, Maybe in more fundamentalist circles where there's a lot of extra biblical rules that are seen as divine law. And people had bad experiences with that and so now they're going to the opposite end of the spectrum. And I guess I think that 
we need to try and stay in a more balanced area. So that's just kind of ruminating on some of the things we talked about last week. Um, so last week, if you weren't here, or I guess it was two weeks ago now, uh, we talked about how legalism is not just following rules. Following rules is not in and of itself legalism. Legalism is not just having a high personal standard or refusing to compromise on your standard, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to compromise. That's not legalism, right? Um, legalism is not just ritual or following ceremonial rules as opposed to ethical, moral rules. None of these things are legalism, I would argue. We shouldn't be afraid of following rules, having high personal standards, or following the Torah, right? Because what does it say in Ezekiel 36? That God will pour out his spirit upon his people to enable them to carefully observe his commandments, his rules, right? So carefully observing rules is not at odds with the Holy Spirit. Walking with the spirit is not at odds with following rules. I think we can safely say that. But at the same time, there are legitimate bad kinds of legalism that we need to avoid. So I'm going to suggest, I'm going to suggest three. Um, we talked, we kind of hashed through this and came up with some definitions of legalism, but I'll, I'll suggest three forms of true legalism. One is obeying rules out of fear, um, meaning out of being afraid that if I don't do this, God's going to punish me because he's waiting there with a big stick ready to whack me as soon as I slip up. And ultimately, it comes down to a deformed view of who God is, right? We don't realize that God is a loving father, that he cares for us, and that um, he wants us to come to him and enjoy fellowship with him and a relationship with him. That doesn't mean there's no rules anymore now that we're in a relationship with him. It means that we get to keep and obey his rules out of love because we love him. Obeying rules out of pride, I'll suggest that's another form of legalism. Uh, and this one maybe we didn't talk about so much last time, but, you know, if I think that I'm better than everyone else because of my manner of obedience, I kind of missed the point, right? And that was a major critique that Yeshua had against the Pharisees. Uh, anyone remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? I don't have the reference offhand. I won't won't take up too much time looking it up right now, but in that parable, Yeshua says there's these two people that went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee comes and he's basically praying, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like some of these other people. You know, I, I do everything right, fast twice a week, I do this, I do that. And the tax collector prays and he's beating his chest, which is something still done in Judaism today. When you're repenting, when you're praying the prayer of repentance, you, 
you beat your chest. He says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Yeshua says, which one went away justified from the temple that day? It was the tax collector, right? So when we're obeying rules out of pride, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. And I think that's something that, um, as messianics, we really need to guard ourselves against. God has entrusted us with this amazing gift of the revelation of his Torah and realizing what a blessing it is to keep his Torah. And we dare not let that blessing turn into a source of pride and arrogance against people who haven't had that gift yet, right? So, yeah, that's something that we need to, to guard against. If our following Torah leads to arrogance and looking down on others, we're not really following Torah, are we? So, and one last one is elevating extra-biblical rules to be on par with Scripture. And I think um, this is something Daria and I have talked about a lot in the realm of parenting, is that your kids can really pick up on when you're elevating rules and you're not sincere about it. And I think it's, it's unhealthy for your personal preferences as a parent to be put on par with divine law, right? And we've seen tragic situations where that has taken place in families and the results have been um, very sad as the kids grew up and chose their own path. So that's something that I think could fit under this label of legalism as being a legitimate legalism that we need to avoid, right? So the bottom line is that our obedience to God's commandments must be out of humble love for him. And when we lose sight of that, that's when our righteous acts become filthy rags, and we have fallen into the trap of legalism. All right. Any last-minute thoughts on that topic before we jump into today's topic? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I think a lot of... Um, a lot of the baggage that we have is the result of seeing uh, people misrepresent God and his word in ways that you can see through the phoniness, right? And people get hurt, people get hurt by that. Um, or, you know, or kids see through their parents' hypocrisy of insisting on a rule and then not keeping it themselves, or things like that, right? And, you know, these kinds of things can have a deep effect on us. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's, I didn't, I didn't add that in there, uh, obeying rules in order to attain salvation. Um, I mean, a lot of people would put that under obeying rules out of fear, out of the fear that something bad, God's going to do something bad to you for slipping up. Um, and the, I mean, that's different than, for example, not touching a hot stove because you're afraid you'll get burnt, right? I mean, there's, there's, there can be a healthy fear, <laughs> and uh, that, that, can, that, is, that can be healthy, right? But there's an unhealthy kind where 
Uh, and this is usually, um, I'm thinking, surrounding extra-biblical standards or rules, um, perhaps a rule that you make up. Like, okay, random example. Uh, we, Dar- Daria uh, and her family know of some people where the kids were not allowed to ever wear the color black because that represents sin and Satan and evil, right? Which is not a rule anywhere in scripture, right? So, and then these, these kids, imagine one of those kids grow up and they feel like they have to keep that rule because if they don't, God's going to punish them. Or they might lose their salvation if they break that rule. Or, right, things like that. That's kind of what I have in mind in that category. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, assuming a, a healthy, functional situation, um, yeah, obviously rules can be a good thing. And even though there may be like a fear of the bad consequences involved, it's in the context of a positive relationship, right? Whereas when you assume, you know, a child who grows up with an abusive father, uh, who's always absent unless he's yelling or, or hurting you, then it's completely different and it completely changes the way you're able to think about God and the way you're able to think about rules and, and all these things, right? So, yeah. 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 Uh, we're prone to make up rules. <laughs> I think as humans, we, we do that all the time. And it's not always bad, right? If, you know, if you don't want to wear lipstick, go for it. I don't want to wear lipstick, so. <laughs> but, but I can't, like, you know, make that a universal rule for all humanity, right? So I think that's, that's where the danger comes, is as soon as we start to put that on par with Scripture or with God's commandments, then we're running into problems. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's move on to today's topic, which is kind of related to this whole thing about legalism and um, the letter and all this stuff. But I want to I talk about this, this concept of our intellect as being somehow in antithesis to the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of people have a view of the Holy Spirit uh, that sees God's Spirit as antithetical to human intellect, effort, or preparation, right? You know, don't don't try so hard. Don't put so much effort into it. Just rely on the spirit. Don't don't rely on uh, you know. Don't don't think about it too much. Rely on the spirit. Don't and you know this this manifests itself in different ways. In some Christian circles, the Holy Spirit is seen as the zany, spontaneous part of God that disrupts man-made structures and moves people to act in ways that, define, that defy human rationality. And the tendency in some circles is to emphasize feeling over thinking, right? Some of this is a personality difference. Um, you know, some people are thinkers, some people are feelers. 
Some people are both. Um, but usually you're kind of one or the other. And depending on the kind of church you go into, in order to be truly spiritual in some churches, you have to be an extroverted, right brain, touchy-feely kind of person. Those are the really spiritual people. <laughs> if you're an introverted thinker, then, oh, you must not be very spiritual. Okay, N disclaimer, it's nothing wrong with being an extroverted, touchy-feely kind of person. <laughs> God knows we need those kind of people in the kingdom too. <laughs> but that's not the only way of being spiritual, right? Spirituality is not based on your personality. It doesn't automatically exclude certain types of personalities, right? Those of us who are introverted thinkers can be spiritual too in our own way, I'm, I would argue. So the question I want to ask here is this. Uh, this is kind of what I'm trying to get at in this session. Is God's spirit inherently opposed to human intellect? Or to ask it another way, does living by the spirit demand that we subdue our rational thinking capacity? Another question, does God's spirit operate only outside of the domain of our intellect? And finally, is the Holy Spirit opposed to human effort and preparation? Um, I should start off by saying that these are kind of uh, trick questions here. Because <laughs> um, there is a sense in which the answer is yes, and there's a sense in which the answer is no. This is closely related to what we were talking about in session nine. Anyone remember session nine? Session nine was our excursus on mysticism and ecstasy. Anyone remember that? That was, that was a long time ago. We were, we were so young back then. Um, so what, one of the things we were trying to tackle in that session is this debate between ecstatic and non-ecstatic views of the Holy Spirit, or does the Holy Spirit always necessarily move in ways that are irrational? And you can find those online if you're curious to listen to those. Yeah, these questions that we're asking, in a sense, the answer is yes, in that God can do whatever he wants. God is not bound to operate within my frame of thinking. I can't put God into a box, right? He's not obliged to work in ways that I approve of rationally, but neither is he obliged to work in ways that always confound my human reasoning. To be sure, God often works in ways that we don't expect, right? We can't, you know, we can't put God in a box, right? We can't, God is not safe in the sense that we can always rely on him to fit into our expectations. Sometimes he blows our expectations out of the water. Like um, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, talking about the, the lion Aslan, the, the one kid keeps asking, well, well, is he safe? And finally, the, I think it's the beaver, answers and says, well, he's not a tame lion. Right? God is not tame. He's not, like, 
something we can control. He's not safe in the sense that we can expect him to meet our expectations all the time, right? Sometimes God calls us to do things that don't make sense to our limited human brains. And sometimes God leads us out of our comfort zone. As we saw, especially in the previous section on flesh versus spirit, our human nature, our natural human inclination is to war against God. Our sinful human nature is at odds with God. Living by the Spirit means denying ourselves and submitting ourselves completely to the kingship of Messiah, allowing the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants in us and through us. It is an act of absolute surrender to his kingship. That includes surrendering our human faculties to him, our, not only our intellect, but also our emotions, our will, our actions, all these things we submit to him. And to be sure, sometimes our intellect is at odds with the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. We probably are all familiar with this verse, but if you have your Bible, why don't you turn to it anyway? Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We can't rely on our own reasoning, our own understanding, our own way of seeing things. We have to realize that God is bigger than that and that his ways are better than our ways, right? We must be willing to acknowledge that we don't always know what's best and we have to be willing to submit our thinking to God and allow him to transform us through the renewing of our minds, Romans 12.2. We'll come back to that verse later. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. When it comes to serving God, our human faculties are never enough. God calls us to do what we cannot do in serving him, what we cannot do in our human strength, and he empowers us to do so by his spirit. Right? So all this, all this is vitally important. But I think what, what I'm trying to tackle in this session is that sometimes we misapply these concepts in, in ways that are not healthy. A common idea that you hear is that the less prepared you are, the better you're able to be led by the Spirit. Have you ever heard that before? I remember uh, once listening to a preacher uh, who somewhat arrogantly draw, drew attention to the fact that he didn't use any notes in his sermon, and he didn't prepare anything ahead of time so that he could just rely on the Spirit. Um, so, so his suggestion was that, I mean, what, what that implies is that it's better to not prepare anything ahead of time so that the Spirit is more free to lead you. And my question is, at what point are you relying on the Spirit, and at what point are you just being lazy? Right? At what point are you making excuses for your lack of preparation? So, should preachers rely on the Spirit? Of course, right? I, I mean, I'm preaching to myself here, but the Bible has a lot to say to people who 
have a teaching role within the body of Messiah. And we dare not present God's holy and righteous word to others without the help of his spirit in any context, whether we're sharing with our neighbor, our, co our co-worker, whether we're on a soapbox somewhere, whatever the situation, we need God's spirit empowering us to proclaim his word and to share it with others. But what I'm suggesting is that this should never be seen as at odds with dutiful preparation. There are times when God will empower us on the spur of a moment to say something that was just the right thing to say, and we may, may not even know it, but it was just what that person needed to hear in that moment. But that doesn't mean we should assume that that will always happen, right? There are times when God saves us from, you know, what otherwise could have been a deadly accident or something like that, right? He, where he miraculously intervenes to prevent us from being hurt in ways where we otherwise might have been. That doesn't mean we don't need to wear our seatbelts, right? There's the dutiful preparation or human effort is not at odds with God's miraculous intervention. We shouldn't see these as one or the other. It's not an either or, right? And, and I think that the way that particular preacher was expressing it um, betrays a mistaken view of how the Holy Spirit works in relation to human intellect and responsibility. Let's talk about the ancient Greeks. Aristotle made a sharp contrast between pnevma, uh, well, nous, which is mind, and pnevma, which is breath or spirit, right? So nous is about, is your reasoning capacity, right? Uh, whereas your pnevma, your, your spirit, your breath, is, is your dynamic enthusiasm. To this day, I think we carry the same sort of distinction, although in English we tend to express it as the difference between your mind and your heart, right? So your mind is where you think, but your heart is where you think hallmark here, guys. What do you do with your heart? Your emotions, yeah? Yeah. Your feelings, that's right, yeah. So you have your, your feelings in your heart, you have your thinking up here, and, there, and, and we tend to separate those two, right? Um, and we'll talk about how you can know something, but you don't really know it. I know it in my head, but I don't know it in my heart yet. Um, and there may be, a, 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 I mean, that may be a valuable way of framing things in certain circumstances, but that type of thinking was foreign to Hebrew thinking. It's foreign to Hebraic mentality. In Hebrew, the word heart means both of these. Your heart is the center of who you are. It's your, um, it's, you, you think in your heart, you feel in your heart, you, you feel in your, your bowels too, in Hebrew thinking. <laughs> it's where your emotions, you have your deepest emotions way down there. And, uh, but, but yeah, your heart encompasses all of who you are, right? And, and so to talk about 
knowing something up here but not really knowing it down here, that, that would have sounded strange to Solomon or to uh, you know, any other biblical figure you want to name. So, you know, th- this is where it gets tricky when we start to import some of these kind of categories dividing things like this into when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Don't rely on your mind, rely on the Spirit. Well, okay, yeah, we don't want to rely on our own understanding, but that doesn't mean that we should then rely on our heart. You know what I'm saying? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, right? It's talking about not just your feelings are deceitful, but like who you are as a person is, you know, you tend to deceive yourself. You tend to, uh, if you rely on your own thinking, your own understanding all the time, you're going to get led astray. We're supposed to not follow after our heart or after our eyes, which lead us astray, but follow after God and his commandments, right? You know, a lot of people look at the Holy Spirit kind of like the force in Star Wars. Everyone remember that scene where uh, Luke is flying the ship to try and bomb the Death Star? And he's got, what is that, that tracking technology running, and he's trying to, trying to get it, you know, he has to get into just the right spot so that it can go into the core and make the whole thing blow up, right? And as he's, like, really focused on trying to do it right, suddenly Obi-Wan's voice comes in and says, Luke, use the Force. Right? And so what does he do? He turns off the technology and relies instead on this vague inner prompting to get it right. I think a lot of Christians think that way about the Holy Spirit. We think that to follow the Spirit means to stop relying on the tools at hand, stop relying on our own intellectual skills or abilities or whatever, and just follow these vague inner promptings. And that's, that's what it means to live by the Spirit. That's what we're tackling in this session. Does the Holy Spirit circumvent our reason and intellect and the, the tools that God has given us at hand to work with? I'm going to suggest that he doesn't. There's a couple of verses I want to look up in just a second, but first, uh, something related to this is what we've talked about in a different context is uh, this anti, anti-intellectualism, essentially, right? We're talking about intellect versus the spirit. Um, this is uh, among some believers, and definitely not all, uh, but some believers in, in churches that emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit, you can sense a bit of an anti-intellectual attitude, right? And, and there's a historical reason for this. You look at the, the rise of early Pentecostalism in the early 1900s, and this was right at, you know, just as the modernism versus fundamentalism debate was coming to a head, right? You've got... Um, the fundamentalist Christians on the one side saying, you know, pounding the pulpit on the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and, and all these things. And then you've got the, more, the liberal modernist Christians over here who are starting to question all these basic doctrines and embracing evolution and embracing 
um, all these modern philosophies and things like that. And it's this intellectual battle that's being waged between the two sides. And right in the middle of that, you have Pentecostalism spring up and offer an alternative to that intellectual battle. And that is an experience. Stop fighting about it. Stop thinking about it. Just come and experience it for yourself. And it proved to be immensely attractive. Um, suddenly, we've got an alternative to get us out of this, this lock, locked-in battle but, uh, over the intellect. And now we can, you don't have to try and argue it rationally. You don't have to uh, use books. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to become a philosopher to argue for the validity of the Bible. You can just experience it. So there is a strong historical reason why this sort of emphasis came out. Uh, it was a very appealing alternative. Uh, along with that often came an attitude that despises intellectual study of scripture, right? Or uh, intellectual approach to, you know, biblical studies or theology or things like that. Uh, the emphasis came to be on your experience, right? What's the true qualifications required for a preacher or a leader in the church? Well, he has to have a spirit-filled experience of speaking in tongues. It doesn't matter if he's been to school or anything like that. That's, I mean, you can go to school and all those degrees and papers that it'll give you doesn't mean anything. It's the experience you have that counts having that empowered experience with the Holy Spirit, right? And, uh, you know, this is a reaction against some of the other stuff that was happening in those days. So, so there is this, this tendency to emphasize feelings and experience over study that was come by naturally, right? It's, I'm not trying to, to uh, vilify that. It's, it's something that there's a reason it happened. Um, the downside to that, of course, is you can end up with, how do, you, how do you discern false teaching, right? How do you discern um, what is healthy preaching according to the word and what is just hype? Right? If, if your litmus test for who's speaking the truth and who isn't is how zealously and passionately and charismatically they're able to proclaim it, you could be setting yourself up to stuff that's not really true, stuff that's not really in agreement with Scripture. Right? All this to say that there's a problem that comes when we emphasize one side to an extreme, right? If we emphasize just that, that passion, that experience, that charisma, at the expense of having grounded knowledge of the scriptures, then we're setting ourselves up to be led astray. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 11. We've looked at this before, but this is a good time to look at it again. Isaiah 11, verse 1. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on. What uh, we've suggested in other sessions, this is like a list of spiritual gifts found in the Tanakh. A lot of people assume that the spiritual gifts are only found in the New Testament. Well, here's spiritual gifts right here in Isaiah. And this is describing, this is describing Yeshua, right? We know that. It's talking about Messiah. The Messiah who comes will be filled with the Spirit, right? But it's also giving a description about the Spirit, right? And it lists seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. I think, in my opinion, this is why in Revelation it talks about the sevenfold Spirit or the seven Spirits of God. Have you ever come across that? That is talking about these seven spirits right here. There is the spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. What, for the purpose of our session today, we've already gone through this passage, so I won't repeat it all, but focus today is notice how many of these attributes of the Holy Spirit are what we would call intellectual. Notice how many of them are dealing with uh, the human faculty of reasoning and thinking. Of course, supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit, but, but it's, not the, it's not the spirit of feeling, the spirit of, of like irrational zeal, the, the spirit of... Um, anti-intellectualism, right? We have wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, right? These are, in our modern categories, we would classify these as intellectual faculties. These are faculties of the mind, right? Attributes of our, our thinking capacities. I want to show this quote from G.A. Smith. He notes that, in commenting on this passage, the spirits of the Lord mentioned by Isaiah are prevailingly intellectual. And Smith goes on to note how this intellectual understanding of the spirit had a large influence on the medieval church in which the spirit was associated with learning and the sciences. Quote, to the medieval church, then, the Holy Spirit was the author of the intellect, more especially of the governing and political intellect. And G.A. Smith goes on to suggest that believers today would do well to recover some of this intellectual understanding of the spirit. That's from uh, the Expositor's Bible commentary from 1888. So this is over 100 years ago. We might suggest that this intellectual understanding of the Spirit is even more rare today than it was in 1888. The point of this is, is it's not to say that the Holy Spirit only works in the realm of the intellect. But it is to say that the intellect is not diametrically opposed to the working of the Spirit, right? Theology and study are not opposed to the Spirit. It's not supposed to be one or the other. 
Some believers have recovered the important message that our faith is not just an intellectual assent or an acceptance of the right propositions, but it's meant to be a dynamic encounter with the living God through the Spirit. But some mistakenly go too far with that by postulating that the Spirit works primarily in the realm of our feelings. Anyone remember this chart about thinking versus feeling? Some of us are more oriented toward the thinking side of the chart. Some of us are oriented more toward the feeling side of the chart. Um, And you go too far in either direction and you end up with uh, problems, I would suggest. So, but most of us would be closer to the middle, I would say. So the point is not an either or. It's not thinking or feeling. It's that I mean, God created us as humans to think, to feel, to crave, to love, to do all these things. And his desire is that through his spirit, he would empower us to do these things in service of him. God's desire is that all our human faculties, our intellect, our emotions, our will, be brought into submission to his spirit. Remember what we learned when we studied the lives of David and Saul? This was even longer ago, back in the series. Uh, When God's spirit is with you, he blesses your efforts. When his spirit is against you, he frustrates your efforts. Let's look at Psalm 50. uh, Sorry, Psalm 51. This is by way of review, but I think this is a good time to look at this again. Psalm 51, let's read verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take, me not, er, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So, this this uh, this psalm, the heading of the psalm, says that it was when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. What David is praying here, he's, he's begging God not to take away the Holy Spirit from him as God had taken it away from Saul. So we saw Saul was filled with the Spirit when he was anointed as king, and he was filled with the Spirit to go out and muster the armies of Israel to fight against the Philistines. But... He grieved the Holy Spirit because he refused to listen to God. And then we read about how when David is anointed, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says the Holy Spirit left Saul and an evil spirit came to Saul instead, a spirit of melancholy or uh, we've, anyway. But the point is that David realizes here he's sinned and he's terrified that God will take away the Holy Spirit from him, just like God did to Saul. Meaning God will take away the kingship, God will take away this dynasty, God will take away all these gracious privileges that he's given David. And so that's, that's the heart of David's prayer here, is do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But what I want to focus on is that there's the word ruach, spirit, is used three different times in these three verses. So first we have a right spirit or a steadfast spirit, ruach nachon, ruach nachon, a steadfast or a right spirit. 
Then we have Ruach Kadshecha, your Holy Spirit. And then Ruach Nadiva, a willing spirit. And it seems that the, so the, the middle one refers to God's spirit, while the other two refer to David's spirit. At least that's the way it, it seems, right? Renew in me a, a right spirit within me. Uh, uphold me with a willing spirit. Or at least it's God, God's spirit empowering David in a certain direction. But there's a sense in which all three are connected. Being filled with God's spirit is what empowers someone to be steadfast and faithful and what enables someone to be willing. God's spirit changes us so that we're willing to obey. He gives us the desire to do what's right. Of course, the implication is that without God's spirit, we don't have the, even the desire to please God, right? Similar to what we were reading about in Paul. Uh, Paul's discussion of uh, how apart from this empowering work of God's spirit, we don't have the ability or the means to actually obey him. And what David prays for here is, is, is exactly what is promised to Israel in the end times. God would give them a new heart, fill them with his spirit so that they would be willing and able to obey him. Uh, for our purposes here, though, notice that the Holy Spirit is not working in antithesis to David's human faculties, but in concert with them by transforming them. Romans 12. Take a quick look at that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Um, so that at the end of verse 1, my translation said spiritual worship. Is there any other translations? Does your translation say anything different? Spiritual service? Spiritual service? No? Okay, in, in Greek, it's logikain latrian. So it's uh, logikain, like, it's where we get the word logical. It's actually not spiritual. It's like logical, pertaining to your, your, log, your, your thinking. Um, my translation has a footnote that says you could also translate it as uh, your rational service, which puts a bit of a different spin on it. It's, this isn't something we do in, you know, the, in an anti-intellectual way. It's, it's, it's an intellectual thing I was talking about here. And it goes on to talk about the transformation of our minds, right? The, it's not denigrating the intellect as inferior to a life in the spirit. It's the transformation and redemption of our intellect along with all our human faculties. And uh, Ephesians 4.23 is kind of parallel to that. It talks about the spirit. I won't uh, spend our time there. I do want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 a little bit, and this will be kind of our last passage to, to tackle before we conclude. 1 Corinthians 2, and we'll start in verse 11. It's 
kind of, we're kind of jumping in the middle here, but it's hard not to unless we start at the beginning of the book. Um, so Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, notice what he's doing here. He's using this term spirit in parallel with the way we would use the term mind, right? So he's talking about how the spirit knows the thoughts of a person. It, yeah, we'll, we'll go on and hopefully it'll make more sense as we go. <laughs> now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Um, that phrase could be translated a number of different ways, like interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual language or comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's tricky. Uh, we went through this in one of our classes in Greek, and it's, it's a tricky phrase. What exactly is Paul talking about? Like we said a couple weeks ago, when Paul uses this phrase spiritual, he's talking about pertaining to the spirit of God. It's not this ethereal, numinous kind of spiritual way like, oh, it's something out there. No, it's, it's God's spirit he's talking about. He uses the word spiritual to mean God's spirit, right? The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are, and the translation says, spiritually discerned. Well, pneumatikos is the word in Greek, spiritually, meaning they're discerned by God's spirit, right? God's spirit is the one who makes them make sense to us. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then here's the, here's the quote. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. He says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Messiah. Now, what's interesting here, what does it mean to have the mind of Messiah? That, that seems kind of abstract, right? This verse that Paul quotes from in the, in the Greek, um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says, uh, nous, mind, the, the mind, who has understood the mind of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's the word ruach, spirit. Paul knows this, and he's making a play on this connection between nous and, and ruach, this, the, the mind and the spirit, right? So when he says, we have the mind of Christ, he's talking about this verse he just referenced, who has understood the mind of the Lord, who has understood the, the Ruach Adonai, the spirit of the Lord? Well, we have the spirit of Messiah, which helps us understand the things of, of God, helps us understand God's thoughts. So all this to say that God's spirit is not working in ways that are contrary to the intellect or in, in anti-intellectual ways, but our intellect ought to be 
part of the way God works in us through his spirit. All right, let's wrap up here. Relying on the spirit doesn't take away human responsibility. Relying on the spirit doesn't take away the rational thinking. It doesn't take away the need for us to prepare adequately as we're able to. But you know, in serving God, our service of God demands our best and more than our best. Our best is never enough. To our best, God has to add his supernatural enabling power by his spirit. I like this quote from Wesley Duell. He says, don't ask God to anoint your second best. And I think that's kind of the thrust of what, I, what we're trying to get at here in this session, is that when we try to pit God's spirit and our own human reasoning and preparations as op- opposed to each other, we're asking God to anoint our second best. We have to share a presentation, so we think, oh, well, I, I won't prepare anything in advance so that God's spirit can work through me. Are you asking God to anoint your second best then? Right? There are times when we do our very best and we honestly feel like, well, you know, I, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared, but I've done my best. And God, and we ask God to do the rest. Right? God's Spirit is meant to transform, God's Spirit transforms our entire being our mind, our will, our emotions, all our faculties, and we're called to serve God with all of those. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, and thank you that through your son Yeshua we can have fellowship with you and that we can partake of your gracious gifts that you give us through your spirit. I ask, Father, that you would empower us in all the ways that you have called us to serve you, that you would um, also help us, Father, to do our best on our side, to do our part, and to trust you for the rest. I ask that you be with us the rest of this afternoon and guide our fellowship together and that you would be glorified in us and through us. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.